As a person with a very deep voice, I'm hired all the time for advertising campaigns. But a deep voice doesn't sell B2B. And advertising on the wrong platform doesn't sell B2B either. That's why if you're a B2B marketer, you should use LinkedIn ads. LinkedIn has the targeting capabilities to help you reach the world's largest professional audience. That's right, over 70 million decision makers all in one place. All the big wigs, then medium wigs. Also small wigs who are on the path to becoming big wigs. Okay, that's enough about wigs. LinkedIn ads allows you to focus on getting your B2B message to the right people. So, does that mean you should use ads on LinkedIn instead of hiring me, the man with the deepest voice in the world? Yes. Yes, it does. Get started today and see why LinkedIn is the place to be to be. We'll even give you a $100 credit on your next campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash results to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash results. Terms and conditions apply. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to the Lord's Podcast with Will Rowe. Well, welcome to the latest Lord's Podcast. As ever, there's plenty to get through and discuss. We look forward to England v Australia in the Women's Ashes Series here at Lord's. Dissect parts of the MCC, Spirit of Cricket, Cowdery Lecture and head down memory lane with former Australia bowler Glenn McGrath. As well as all this, we have our usual Middlesex section. We catch up with Angus Fraser as the race for the county championship title heats up. Well, we're perched up here in the JP Morgan Media Centre in the TMS box. And it's a great pleasure to welcome my co-host, capped over 150 times by England women, the current chair of the MCC Women's Cricket Subcommittee, and the holder of the highest ever score in a one-day international at this ground. It's Claire Taylor. Welcome. Thank you. It's good to be here. How are you at the moment? Yeah, pretty good. Um, Fairly busy at work. Uh, Work as a management consultant. Now I've retired from cricket and uh, looking forward to hopefully starting a master's uh, qualification in September. Oh, fantastic. What's that in? It'll be business and management or something similar. And um, do you miss the game now? It's a couple of years since you retired. Um, do you tend to watch it a lot, listen to it on the radio? Or? I listen to it on the radio a lot. I'm a bit of a Test Match special uh, geek. And um, I've just uh, made my debut on Test Match Sofa at the weekend, talking about the men's test. Uh, so that was great fun. Good, good. And... Um, well, moving on to the, the ashes, the men's ashes at the moment. Uh, it's being described as a damp squib, a bit of an anti-climax amongst other things, but England have regained the ashes. Um, what, what are your thoughts on the series thus far? Um, it's been an interesting series. It's been uh, There's been some um, differences in, in, the, in the games, hasn't there? There's been some um, real contrasts between that really close game Trembridge to start and then at Lords where England dominated and then we go to Old Trafford and Australia dominate and England get out of jail free. Mm-hmm. So from, from that perspective, um, I don't think England have played their best cricket yet. Um, I think they'll be looking forward to the next test. The pressure is off them. I think there will have been something in the back of all of their minds that there was rain due on the last day of the test. They knew that right from the beginning of the test. Um, so in some ways 
that changed probably changed the way they looked to play the game. They knew they just needed to get a draw, so it, all of that pressure's off now. Um, so hopefully, you know, we'll see some really great cricket from both sides because there's nothing to lose from either side. It's all about you know pride now. The result it stands in the series. England have retained the Ashes, um, and Australia are going to have to wait till the winter to actually get another chance to win them back. And of course, this month, we've got the Women's Ashes. So, segueing across, I'd like to talk a little bit about that now. Um, gets underway as Charlotte Edwards and her team try to regain the urn. I mean, it all starts with a test match at Wormsley, followed by three one-day internationals and three T20 fixtures. Um, the first ODI is, in fact, here at Lords on Tuesday the 20th of this month. Uh, tickets are still available for that game here and can be bought on our ticket website. You just have to go to ticket.lords.org. Um, it's the first time that there's a new multi-game format which will be used where each match is worth a certain amount of points, the test is worth six points and the subsequent one days and T20s are worth two points each. Well firstly you must be very excited by the women's ashes coming up. It's always great um, as a player to be playing against Australia. Um, I think the English and Australian uh, Australian teams over the course of the last couple of years have probably been the best two teams across all of the formats. Um, certainly the West Indies has made a bit of an impact and, and, and there's always India at home. But um, realistically, I think these are the two best sets of players uh, playing women's cricket in the world at the moment. Um, the Australians are the holders of the uh, One Day in 2020 World Cups um, and they have some amazing players in their team. And then England, on the other hand, equally some great players in that team and they will be smarting from losing uh, mm. the One Day and uh, uh, trophy to Australia and also um, losing in the final of the T20 in the winter. So they'll be up for you know putting one over on the Aussies again. And this time we've got this this new format. I'd like to ask you a little bit about that. Um, I mean, what what are your general thoughts on it? Because it's been brought in, and it's it's six points for the first test, and then after that it's two points per game. The the one dayers and the T twenties. So, you know, it's it's going to be almost like a, a mini league table of points to to play for. Yeah, if you look at it just as it is, um, you say you'd be disappointed that the Ashes has been. Um, it is being decided uh, on one day cricket and T20 cricket but I think the underlying issue is that there's only one test match and mm. I've played in a number of one test test series over the past uh, few years and that's really difficult that's hard that the, the, the ashes um, could disappear on the result of one test match and we all know that test match can change in one session so you can have one bad session and the ashes has gone for another 18 months and you don't get another go yeah. at, at trying to get it back um, that creates extra pressures in that game uh, added to the fact that, that, that women don't play declaration cricket in their domestic structure in England so um, there's two choices I think here we either have to I, I think we have to keep test cricket played at the international level but we either need to uh, play more tests to make you know, the decision about the Ashes viable just on test cricket. You have to play two or three tests every series at least. Mm. Or you go the other way, which is, which is what's happened here. And you say that the Ashes um, are decided across the whole of the competition, really, between the two sides, the test match, the 2020s and the one-day matches. What, what can the public expect from this, this series? I think women's cricket is now more and more coming in 
to their attention as a, as, a, as the game itself. Um, what what can people expect if they were to go to Wormsley to watch the first test? Um, they go to Wormsley. They're going to watch a, a test match between two good teams, great teams of players. Um, there's um, attacking aggressive bowlers on each side. England have got Catherine Brunt and Anya Shrubsole, uh, who are likely to um, open the bowling. Uh, Catherine Brunt, very aggressive, fiery, fast bowler. Um, Annie Shrubsole, great fast bowler, thinks about her game a little bit more probably and uh, has um, some more variations up her sleeve. So I think she'll be looking forward to uh, test cricket and, and, uh, and being able to work over some of those Australian batsmen. Um, the Australians, they've got some good quicks as well, the likes of uh, Elise Perry, who's a very exciting player. I've played test cricket against her. Um, she's, she's very combative. Mm. Um, got a good bouncer so you know there's the there's the bowling both sides have got good aggressive spin bowlers we'll we'll also see some uh some good batting um the uh oh charlotte edwards uh playing for england plenty of experience um she'll be up against probably blackwell in terms of experience on the australian side in terms of numbers of tests played and, and influence on the game um but there's some exciting young batters on both sides i think jess cameron um, on the Australian side and uh, I'm hoping that um, my county compatriot uh, Heather Knight will get a game for England uh, and, uh, um, and play well. Charlotte Edwards as captain, she's slightly older than the majority of the players. Can you tell me a little bit about what she's like as a, as a captain? Uh, Lottie, uh, Lottie Edwards, um, she's um, very passionate about her cricket. She's a real cricket geek, uh, badger, as, they, uh, <laughs> as, as we would call, call them in the squad. Um, she, she's just um, determined for England to do well and to figure out ways that she as captain can get the most out of herself and the most out of her players and her fielders, bowlers and so forth. Um, she, um, she got into the side very, very young, came out of playing uh, boys underage cricket in Huntingdonshire, uh, captained I think the under 16 county boys side there and then got into the England side as a sort of 17 year old. Um, so she's been playing for a long time now um, and that experience added to her you know, underlying talents. Um, she's got a great eye for the ball, she strikes the ball nicely, she's a very uh, proactive, beautiful cricketer. Um, she's a key person throughout all three formats of the game for us. And I'd like to ask a little bit about Holly Colvin and also Sarah Taylor. Um, mm -hmm. Sarah Taylor, earlier this year, was there was some talk about her maybe playing men's cricket for Sussex Second Eleven. Um, she's kind of seen a bit as the golden girl of the, the England side for her talent. Um, can you, yeah, can you tell me a little bit more about her and what she can bring to this side? Uh, another young cricketer who came, or another cricketer who came into the squad very young. Um, and as you say, um, in incredibly talented. Um, I think when young talented players come in, there's always that testing out, isn't there? That they tend to make a really big splash on the game very, very quickly. Um, and then they have to start working hard at their game to try and improve and to step up a level. I think this thing with Sussex second eleven and the keeping and so forth is, is interesting. Um, there's two different ways of, of looking at it, I think. In terms of her own personal development she needs to be playing the best standard of cricket that she can play and if that's men's league cricket or you know the possibility of some Sussex second 11 cricket then 
she needs to be developing as a cricketer and continually continually being channel, challenged. Um, that's great if she's then going to bring that back into the women's game and um, perform even better within the women's game. If we lose her to the men's game because she goes off and she plays men's cricket and doesn't come back and doesn't bring that back into the women's game, then that will be sad for the women's game. And I'd now like to move on and talk a bit more generally about the women's game. And to all intents and purposes, it still remains, to a degree, an, an amateur sport at the moment. Could you tell me a little bit about you know, the women's setup in this country and maybe a bit broader as well? Yeah, um, a, a quick history lesson, as it were. Um, women's cricket was completely amateur in this country. Um, and the Women's Cricket Association was set up in the 1930s. Um, separate from um, the uh, men's cricket uh, setup, which was um, run by the MCC for a long time and then became the Test and County Cricket Board and then became the England and Wales Cricket Board. It wasn't until the late 90s that uh, the Women's Cricket Association and the ECB merged. Um, at that point, um, women's international cricket was taken under the auspices of the ECB, and that's the point at which the game started to become more professional in its outlook. Um, we had prof you know, professional coaches came in to coach us. Um, we were considered within the England squad at that point, um, like other lottery-funded athletes, mm. Olympians and so forth, and we would get some expenses towards our um, cricket expenses, travel costs and kit costs and so forth. And we had access to some really great um, people to work with, like physios and coaches and so forth, uh, through the England, English Institute of Sport. Um, we weren't paid, though. We weren't paid to play. Um, we were given a, a living cost stipend, um, which was aimed at making sure we didn't have to work full time, that we could you know, put aside maybe 20 or 30 hours a week uh, for cricket training and then work perhaps 30 hours a week instead of 35 or 40. Um, over time, the England-Wales Cricket Board has improved the support for the women and I think last year, um, tour fees, match fees and so forth came into place really for the first time in a very structured way within the, the England women's setup. And the, the MCC plays quite a strong role in the development of young female cricketers with the, with the Young Cricketers Scheme. Um, I mean, that, that, that must be very valuable in helping women sort of get into the game and, and progress to the standards, you know, to the England, that level of play. Yeah, um, the MCC Young Cricketers Scheme um, started off probably five years or so ago and it started with a small number of female players um, but um, it's, it's grown significantly over the past three years and now the MCCYCs is pretty much um, the England Women's Academy mm. um, sort of standard of player um, and gives them a really intense um, environment into which to work on their cricket throughout the summer months with the funding that's available the expectation is so much higher about the amount of time that you'll commit to the sport um, you know, 160, 170 days a year commitment, that's two-thirds of a full-time job. It's really hard for the girls to find uh, work outside of the game that will support them and allow them the flexibility to, to play and to train and to, to go away on tour uh, in the winter and in the summer. So from that perspective, it's as you get older, it's it's harder to maintain both. So you know, you yeah. do see younger players come into the setup 
they make a really big splash very early, very talented players. Um, and then they start to ask questions. So the likes of Ishii Guha, they get into their late 20s and they're starting to think about having to buy a house or get a mortgage or mm. so forth. And it's just not supportable. It's not, it's not really possible to do that whilst playing cricket uh, for England. And how did you personally find the work-cricket balance? Because there was a period where you sort of went away from the game for a bit. Um, so I, I got a graduate job after uh, leaving university and uh, tried for about four years to um, play cricket for England and to do this graduate job. And in the end, it, it was untenable. It was just too, too hard on me. Um, so I took redundancy from the job and I spent four or five years as a semi-pro cricketer uh, in the winter I would be in New Zealand and in the summer I would be here and I'd be playing cricket 10, 11 months of the year. Um, that was that was great for a while, but no, there's no, there was no money in it. And um, I was living at home with my mum and dad. And uh, I really wanted to have my own place and, and to start to live a, um, to live a, li- a different kind of lifestyle, really. So... Um, I went back to work. I, got, I found a part-time job. I was really, really lucky. Um, I'm still working uh, with that organisation now. Um, and, I, and I would work sort of three days a week um, around cricket and around cricket training. And I had the time to go off and tour. Um, and that was just about enough to be able to convince the bank manager to give me a mortgage and, and get a house. But that, that balance is, is difficult to find, mm. really difficult to find. So the chance to shine contracts have been a good way of uh, of getting the girls that kind of balance but and they're, but they're really aimed at those girls who are interested in coaching as well so you know for those who um who want to do slightly different things with their life once they've finished university and so forth then there's some real thinking it needs to happen there about how they can be challenged and how we can find them work a good example would be holly colvin actually who's who's gone off and and, and is doing is working for uh, the Cricket Foundation and uh, Cricket Without Boundaries and so forth, doing PR work. And mm-hmm. Rosalie Birch was the same. She mm-hmm. managed to, um, to to get that flexibility with a with a uh, role in PR for cricket. So it's kind of if if those coaching roles and th- those opportunities from Chance to Shine arise, they're very good for for the for the women to take up because then you can kind of combine cricket coaching and cricket playing. So maybe your your work and cricket life really collide quite nicely and if that suits the players then that's great Pers- personally I wanted a job outside of cricket so that I could just step away from cricket and say okay now I'm working yeah and and then when it came round to cricket time that was definitely cricket time and it was 100% cricket 100% focused on my cricket and how it was going to improve as an England player rather than totally everything being about cricket 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 which um, I found quite wearing okay lovely um, well, now I'd like to talk a little bit about the, the Cowdery Lecture. Um, last month, we had the MCC, Spirit of Cricket Cowdery Lecture. It was delivered by former international umpire Simon Taufel, a very apt choice considering the debate that has cropped up during the current Ashes series surrounding umpires and technology. Alison Mitchell hosted a discussion afterwards with England's Owen Morgan and Mike Gatting. One of the topics that was discussed was walking. Uh, following the incident in the first test at Trent Bridge, when Stuart Broad edged a delivery to first lip and stood his ground, uh, with no reviews left, Australia had to stomach an umpiring howler. Mitchell asked Taufel directly if in such circumstances Broad should have left the field. Would you have liked to have seen Stuart Broad walk, or any batsman for that matter? 
<laughs> I, I said that it's up to each individual to do the right thing. And I don't think any one of us up here can stand up here and say to Stuart, you should have done this. <coughs> that's up to Stuart to make that decision as to what he thinks is the right thing to do. And he'll go back and internalise that, look in the mirror, as we all do with everything that we do and say, how do we go today? Do we do the right thing? And you know, we all have to live with those decisions. I mean, what is it like in the, in the England dressing room? If Stuart had walked, what would the response have been in the dressing room? I firmly believe that we would have respected his decision. Um, everybody's in their team because they make very good decisions and, and, and they're correct on the majority of the time. So if he had to come in and walked off, um, that, would have, that would have set pretty all right. With, with, is it something that is discussed as a team to say... Do you yeah, walk or don't? We, yeah, you know, we, yeah. We, we decide as a team that we will be walkers or we will stand our Absolutely ground. Absolutely not. I mean, by the time you've got to the standard of, of, of England, yeah, majority of people know if you walk or don't. To be honest, I can't think of one at the moment. Um, but again, that's, that's just the fashion in which it's played nowadays. There's very few around in international cricket that, that do walk. Is that a sad fashion though, Gant? Or, I mean, it, it's been the, <coughs> the, the debate of time immemorial, hasn't it? The only thing I said to my players, I said, I, I don't mind if you don't walk, or you can walk, or you can not walk, I don't mind. I said, but when the umpire gives you out, get off the pitch, because that's really what it's about. It's about the individual, and in different parts of the world they play the game differently, um, and, and some will do that. But you can only say to your own players, it's up to you. If you're a walker, fine, if you're not, don't matter, but if you get given out by the umpire, respect the umpire's decision and go. And that's really where you should leave it. Mike Gutting finishing there with a clear message on respecting the umpire's decision. Should Broad have walked? Uh, international cricket, international cricket umpires, uh, no. No. But DRS, I mean, it's, it's really come to the fore in this recent Ashes series because I think Alistair Cook was saying in the, in the press the other day that the players from both sides are now a little bit confused about it in terms of how it's being applied um, what are your overall thoughts on the use of DRS and then also in the women's game you don't have DRS so does that affect the women's game to a degree in the way it's played? I've got some quite strong views I guess on DRS and the impact of uh, the, the change in the game. I, I, we can't take cricket back to where it was. Um, you know, cricket, international cricket now with TV, with advertising, with um, the following that it has and the, the stakes now, the amount of money that's in the game, the sponsorship of the game, the endorsements of individual players, that cricket is about so much more than just the simplicity of the game now. So international cricket is, is quite a long way away now, sadly, from a Sunday friendly 11 knock around in the park and because of the stakes are so high people want to see the decisions are correct so they're starting to question whether the on-field umpiring is sufficient enough to be to make the correct decision so DRS and technology and where technology has been available in uh, within the, the television realm for a number of years now there seems, and, and it was used to add to the drama, to add to the entertainment, to start to question in a way the on-field umpiring and so forth. And I, I can't see how you can not use it to help the on-field umpiring now it's available. 
in a, in a way I wish it never had been made available because I don't really want test cricket to be that far away from what's available to uh, every boy and girl, man or woman playing cricket. You know, that's that football adage, isn't it? That, that football's such a brilliant game because a game of football can be the same at international level as it can be uh, on a Sunday kicking around in the park with your mates. Um, I think we've got DRS now. The use of DRS needs to be consistent. It needs to be consistent across the international game. One of the really interesting things that Simon said was that there are only eight hotspot cameras in the world. And to use hotspot correctly um, at an international fixture, you need four of those. So what happens when there's three matches on at once? Who, deci- who decides who gets the, the cameras? Or do all three matches get cameras, but just not not all, not enough of them? Um, questions like that, and the fact that um, India um, are, are not keen on using DRS in home series, um, you mentioned the women's game. The, the women's game will never see DRS, not not in not in the short term anyway. We've we've only just got um, run out cameras in the matches that are televised. In the matches that aren't televised, it's us and the umpires, which is how perhaps it should be. Can we really compare an international test match to a friendly on a village green? Or is there is there maybe a worry that people, kids growing up watching, you know, the old the T sign they now use for a review? will start to undermine umpires on a Saturday afternoon, start to question decisions, maybe not walk off like they would have done in the past because they see it in the professional game that there's now an acceptance that you can you can question an umpire's decision. It's part of the game now. However, in club cricket and friendly cricket, you, you can't really question an umpire's decision once it's been given because clearly you don't have the technology to on a Saturday or Sunday afternoon. Yeah, it's an interesting one, isn't it? I mean, even when, even five, six years ago, when you know we had the the square sign <laughs> that the umpires used uh, on uh, stumpings and runouts and so forth, um, you'd see that you'd see kids doing that. Kids would do that to umpires um, when they were playing, and and in jest, it, you know, it's okay, but it does start to raise concerns. I think that that. Um, we need the we need the umpires to be respected because we need umpires within the game and if we can't show respect um, even in a Sunday uh, friendly or in a Tuesday night 20 over under 13 side um, then we're not going to have umpires at the lowest levels of the game who want to who want to stand and who want to officiate so it's a it's a really difficult balance to get to Middlesex County Cricket Club at Lords since 1877. Following a disappointing 2020 campaign, Middlesex have now got their sights set firmly on the LV County Championship title. Two commanding victories over Sussex and Durham in the last few weeks have put Neil Dexter's team in a strong position with just five matches to play. I caught up with Middlesex Director of Cricket, Angus Fraser, and first asked him if he was willing to talk about the C word. I'm very happy to talk about it, um, but um, not to get giddy about it. Uh, but but equally, um, very satisfied that we are in the shake-up. Uh, this is where we wanted to be at the start of the season, very much in the thick of things at the end of the season. I don't think the fact that we're in the, uh, the mix should be something that we should worry about. I mean, we just go for it. I mean, you've got nothing to lose. It's not a question of you, you sort of, if you don't win it, it's a failure or you've had a miserable season or anything like that. 
uh, you enter the season to, to, to compete against the big sides, um, some clubs that have been playing in the first division for quite a few years and to hold your own and the fact that we're doing that is a source of great encouragement and yeah we've just got five games to go and who knows what might happen if we win three of them we should be very handily placed. And it must be a bit of a mixed blessing for him and yourself. Um, Stephen Finn, of course, he's sort of he's fallen out of the England side for the time being, which is great for Middlesex. And obviously, it's probably it's good as well because he's probably going to be he's got a point to prove. How valuable is it to have a, a strike bowler like that going into these final five games? Well, I think any camps in the country would like Stephen Finn uh, in their attack. Um, what he brings is significant, uh, pace, bounce, quality, hostility. Uh, he's, a, he's a fine, fast bowler. Yes, he's not bowled as well as he can do this summer. And probably the English sex were right not to pick him. But I think it's, whilst he comes back desperate to prove a point, I think the main thing for him is that he bowls well. And uh, some t- t- just you don't have to look at the wicket column to see that people want And that, I think that's where Stephen's got to get himself and that's what we want to see it's it's the maidens and runs columns that are equally important to the wickets column because you you need England bowlers and England bowlers need to be bowling consistently they don't need to be naught for 90 one day in 15 overs and, and 4-5 for 90 the next day Angus Fraser on his team's county championship hopes and Stephen Finn well the last time that Middlesex won the county championship was back in 1993 Mike Gatting was captain and uh, Fraser was in that side final game of this season is up at Yorkshire, who are currently top, and it could be quite a finale. There's only 14 points between the two sides at the moment. Yorkshire are top of the table, and Middlesex currently sit in third position. Um, Claire, I'd just like to talk a little bit about Stephen Finn now, actually. Um, Gus Fraser is saying there that he's, he's not quite got the consistency, but of course, you know, he is a very, very talented fast bowler, and any side would want him in their side. Um, what are your, your current thoughts on where Stephen Finn is at in, in terms of his England career? Um, he's obviously not been selected uh, for the last test. Um, and he responded well. I think he got seven or so wickets at the weekend, didn't he? He's he's had that problem with getting too close to the stumps and with his feet clipping the stumps. And, and I think for fast bowlers... I've never been one, but I can quite imagine that uh, rhythm is very important to them. So the rhythm that he attains when he runs up sets him up for that delivery. And some of the consistency that he's lost is probably due to the fact he can't quite seem to find a consistent run-up at the moment that suits his bowling action and yet takes him just far enough away from the stumps to not clip the stumps because he's going to get called for a low ball every ball. So... And he hasn't had that much time to make the changes because we only had the no-ball decision um, very, at the very start of the season, didn't we, coming out of the Laws Committee, I think, uh, earlier this year. Around March, April time, yes. Absolutely. So he's not really had that much time away from the, the fight of international cricket to, to really change, make significant changes. So he's probably a little bit unsettled. I think, I think also that, that um, he needs to decide what sort of fast bowler he wants to be you know mm. does he want to be um, really an, an aggressive fast bowler who's looking to knock batsmen over or is he going to pull back from that slightly and and, and and is he going to is he not going to be quite so aggressive and so I think those two things are both quite unsettling at the moment so 
in fact, he probably does want a little bit of time back in county cricket, get some overs under his belt for Middlesex. Pressure's not on him quite so much. Um, he'll be back on his, his, his home pitch uh, every other game, probably, won't he? So he's back in his comfort zone a little bit, which will allow him to hopefully settle in a bit and, and maybe push for a place in the last test. History and cricket with the Lord's podcast. In 1997, Lords witnessed one of its finest ever spells of bowling when Australia's Glen McGrath took 8 for 38 at the ground. McGrath was at Lords last month commentating on the current Ashes series. He had the honour of ringing the five-minute bell one morning and afterwards my colleague Mick Lemaire caught up with him. He first asked him what it was that he enjoyed about bowling here. I think this, this ground was tailor-made for my style of bowling. You know, If I could pick this wicket up and put it in my pocket and take anywhere in the world, happy days. So I think... You know, it's got the slope going uh, left to right and I bowl from the pavilion end and I think that uh, natural variation I had where I could hit the wicket just outside off stump, some would hold its line, their line going up the slope and the others would just you know, hit the wicket and come back down the slope into the, the stumps and batsmen didn't really know which one, was, was, which one it was going to be as long as I got the length right. So the line and the length was, uh, was key here. Uh, when I picked up my first five-wicket haul here in the eight, I got Nasser Hussain out from my fifth wicket, and it was just after a break. I bowled it full, it just straightened off the wicket into the stumps. He didn't come forward at all and hit him in the middle of the pad, and it was hitting nothing but middle stump. And uh, you know, then you know, I, I appealed and given out, and then I knew my name was going up on the board, and it was uh, an amazing, amazing moment and something I'm very proud of. And, yeah, lucky enough to, to be up there three times. Yeah, amazing. Well, I was going to ask about 2005. What was it like to be involved in that amazing test match and that whole series? Well, it was. There was a lot build up, uh, build up heading into that match and uh, or into that series, really. England had been playing well. Australia had been playing well. And we came here and England, we won the toss and batted. And um, England came hard at us. I think Ricky Ponting got hit. Justin Langer, Harmy, Harmison bowled well. Aggressive, fast, and as did all the... English bowlers and they knocked us over uh, for not a, a big total on the on the board and we came out to uh, to bowl I think we bowled, may have bowled a couple overs just before tea and then we came out after tea and uh, I was sitting on 499 test wickets as well so just add a little uh, incentive there and I picked up first ball after the break again you know it sort of pitched sort of middle middle uh, leg and went away from Treskothic down the slope and he tried to work it through mid-wicket and got enough edge on it to carry to Justin Langer around about sort of fourth slip. And uh, I took my 500th wicket and then the rest, uh, I think, picked up five wickets in, in a matter of uh, a few overs. And it was the tide had turned. The English crowd were really behind England. The, you know, they just knocked over Australia for a fairly small total. And then uh, and my father was sitting in the crowd and he loved the interaction between the English crowd and the Australian crowd and how in the morning the English gave it to the Aussies and then when you know, we came out after tea and picked up five quick ones, the Aussies gave it back to the English and it was, uh, it was an incredible day. Um, and England sort of dominated to start with and the way Australia fought back sort of really set the tone for the rest of that test match. Um, and then sort of went on to Edgebaston and, and the rest of the series. It was, it was one of the best series, I think, for a long, long time. Glenn McGrath there chatting about the 2005 Ashes series and playing at Lords. Um, Claire, where do you rate Glenn McGrath as a bowler? <laughs> <laughs> he's, he's a legend. Um, he's, he was the, um, he's just metronomic in his ability to pretty much land the ball on the same spot. And because of his action is so 
so repeatable. Um, and he got just enough movement, um, you know, in the air and off the scene um, to be always asking questions. Not lavish, lavish movement, too much to beat the bat, but just enough to beat the bat. You only need two or three inches of movement um, off the scene. Um, you only need perhaps two inches to get to, to nick the edge. So, um, and especially on a pitch like Lords, which offered a little bit, and Lords always, as a batsman, especially at the beginning of your innings, you're always concerned about the slope. Whether or not the slope actually is going to have an impact, it's not going to have an impact every ball. And that's what makes it difficult because you don't know whether it's going to come in off the slope or or if you're at the other end, go away slightly off the slope. So um, the the closest in the women's game uh, is an Indian bowler called Julan Goswami who comes in, um, she's not lightning quick, um, just like Glenn wasn't lightning quick, but... um, comes in very metronomic action very straight arm and the ball always does something but does it very late so as a batsman you're always you know you're always concerned about what's going to happen off the bounce so you can't take the risks off her that, that you would off other bowlers and when you batted here at lords with the bowler coming from the pavilion end like Len McGrath did as you were just saying i mean was it was it was the slope almost in your mind did you have to battle with the slope in your mind or was it very much the real slope that you were concerned about? It's a bit of both, really. There is When you first go in, you, you do notice, uh, if you're batting from the, the nursery end, the, the weight is on your heels, I'm a right-handed batsman, um, rather than on your toes. So that's the first thing. You've got to get your feet moving and you've got to get used to that slight weight transfer um, change. Um, same at the other end. So it's different at both ends and that, that, that's what makes the challenge of batting at Lords, you know, all that much more interesting. Um, as, as ever in cricket, by the time you're in, you forget about all of that. It's just about the ball, it's just about the field, and it's just about you know what run rate you need or whatever. But it's, you know, it's that first 10 minutes. And in a moment's time, we're going to talk about special innings of yours here. Um, I'd just like to ask, Glenn McGrath, was, was he the best Aussie quick ever? <laughs> the best Aussie quick. The best Aussie quick <laughs> ever I never faced. Um, I don't know. I mean, Lily... He was pretty good, wasn't he? Tomo. He was pretty quick, wasn't he? So, you know, um, of his time, um, Glenn McGraw was, was such a great Australian cricketer. It'd be interesting to see how players play, you know, if he'd been around in the 2020 era, um, how cricketers would be playing him now, whether they would start to be taking a few more risks off and how he would react to that. Because um, that metronomic um, bowling doesn't work quite so well in 2020 cricket as players get used to it does it it's a fair point and there's there's plenty of content on the lords website at the moment about Glenn McGrath if you just go to lords.org you can find a video interview with him there's a blog on his successes here he took three five wicket hauls and there's an article about his portrait which uh, currently hangs in the pavilion um, you're having your portrait done soon I believe apparently so yeah I've been uh, it, oh, what an honour to be up <laughs> Um, to, to maybe have a picture hung in the um, in the pavilion um, amongst the likes of Glenn McGrath and Shane Warne and Alex Stewart and Atherton and then some of the older uh, players players throughout the history of the game. So, yeah, um, it's going to be an interesting process. I think it'll take about you know four or six months maybe uh, through the number of sittings and so forth. But yeah. Going to say a lot, a lot of sitting very still. Yeah, I'm not sure about that. <laughs> I'm wondering if I can have an iPad <laughs> and be reading and sitting very still, and then have the iPad taken out. 
The modern portrait. Modern portrait, yeah. With an iPad, lovely. And other, uh, other tablets are available. <laughs> <laughs> and um, I'd now like to, to finish off by talking about a, um, a very special record that, uh, that I trailed at the beginning of the podcast. Uh, in 2006, you broke the record for the highest ever One Day International score at this ground when you when you scored 156 not out against India. Um, I, can I ask you about your memories from that? You broke Viv Richards' record, 138 not out that he set in 1979 in the World Cup. It's quite an accolade. It is. Um, I, I, at the time, I didn't know. So um, we arrived here for the for the one day match. We'd just finished a, a drawn test match at Leicester. I'd scored a century in that, so I was in good form going into the game. Um, we'd had a good hard practice day the day before here. Um, there was rain about um, that morning, and we didn't start on time. So there was a delayed start. The, the match was already down to forty eight overs uh, aside. Um, and we lost our first wicket pretty early. Um, and I went out to bat with, uh, and Laura, Laura Newton was uh, already at the wicket. Um, what do I remember of that day? Um, Julianne Goswami was, was bowling. She was actually bowling from the nursery end. She was doing far too much with the ball, taking it away far too much. I didn't lay, we didn't score that many runs for the first 10 overs or so, um, but we were still in. So, um, 100 partnership with Laura Newton, another 100 partnership with Jenny Gunn. Um, the outfield was wet, so I think there were maybe only 12 fours scored in the entire innings. Um, so we did a lot of running to get to 250 odd. Um, I, it, was a, it was a great day. Um, I, I was so tired after the, I'd batted for two, two hours, 40, two hours, 50, most of the um, 48 over innings. And, uh, and all of that running and I got back upstairs and uh, I couldn't eat <laughs> I lost about two and a half kilograms um, I was shaky and the physio said you're not going back on until you can eat some food and we can get your weight back up you can you know there's a fluid loss um, uh, so I'd lost probably two and a half liters of fluid and just uh, just settle down a bit because you've got the shakes and everything so yeah I went back on um, when, when it was safe for me to do so, probably mm-hmm. both from my perspective and the team probably didn't want someone who was going to fall over <laughs> on the pitch with them. So, yeah, I think um, I think we bowled them, well, I think they got about 150. So, yeah, it was a great day. So you, you sacrificed a Lord's lunch for that innings? I tell you what, you play in the matches here and everybody says Lord's lunches are amazing. And as a top-order batsman... You're either, you've either just batted and you know you've got to go and field for three hours so you can't eat much anyway, or you're just about to bat so you're nervous and you can't eat much. I didn't have a decent Lord's lunch until that 2020 final day where we played the game before lunch and the game was over and I knew I could eat all three courses of a Lord's lunch. That was a good Lord's lunch. Fantastic. And um, you did you passed Viv Richards' record um, to when you got the 156 not out. Um, you, you didn't know at the time when you passed 138, you, you'd done that. But you're now on one of the performance boards which hang up round the ground. And every time you walk through the Grace Gates, there's your photo. What's, what's that feeling like? I know, that's amazing. And, and every time one of my friends walks through the Grace Gates or comes in from the, uh, the North Gate entrance and sees the, the, the board down there, that, that they say... Oh, your picture's up! I didn't know your picture was up. Um, it, it's great, um, and and it's nice. It's nice to be recognised in that way, and to, to have my endeavours um, uh, recognised in the same way that the men's are. 
And um, you've also got the accolade of being the only female cricketer thus far to be one of the five Wisdom Cricketers of the Year. Um, that must be quite special. It's it, it's a whole different um, ball game to to use a cliche. Um, mm. It's not something I ever expected. It was not something that was ever. It's not something you strive for. You don't play cricket to become a Wisdom Cricketer of the Year. You certainly don't play w- women's cricket to become a Wisdom Cricketer of the Year. You play women's cricket to because you love the game and because you, you know you want to play for an England side that is capable of winning World Cups and does win World Cups um, so to, to to get that honour um, to, to be told perhaps six months in advance that it was happening and then not to be able to tell anyone um, that was an interesting secret to keep um, <laughs> How did you do that? I, I did, I kept it um, my mum was very disappointed that um, that lovely man Sean Berry had you know taken me for lunch um, on on the promise she thought of an article in the Sunday Telegraph and uh, she bought the Sunday Telegraph every week <laughs> for probably two months afterwards and the uh, article never appeared and she she didn't like Shaw after that for until she found out what really happened so yeah <laughs> that's lovely and um, well I think that's about it for today. Um, Thank you very much for coming on the podcast. I hope you've enjoyed it. No, thank you very much. It's been fun. Good stuff. Well, uh, many thanks for tuning in. We'll be back next month with the YB40 final and more cricketing stories from Lords. So remember to follow us on Twitter. We're at Home of Cricket. Be our friend on Facebook. And for all the latest news from Lords, just go to lords.org. See you soon. Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer incentive offers. 15178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe and Summit 4xe models in dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark. So, you've got an idea for a business. The store of your dreams. There's just one thing to figure out. Everything. That's why Shopify's all-in-one commerce platform makes it easy to sell online, in person, and everywhere else. Sell on social media. Source products with an app to get that first sale feeling. It's the only solution that gives you everything you need to sell everywhere you want. So when you're ready to bring your idea to life, power it up with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash listen. 